0: Before we get started, Erica, you have some exciting news. That's right, Mark.
1: (laughs) I've created a cabaret in collaboration with the Lyric Stage Company of Boston. I kind of call it a mini movie because it does follow a narrative of sorts. This cabaret is called Daydreamers Carnival. You can learn more at www.lyricstage.com. It is streaming April 22nd, 23rd, 24th, and 25th only with a talkback on the 25th.
0: is pretty much pop, a culture podcast choosing the path of contemplative speculation as monsters rampage over our cities. And yesterday we are discussing Godzilla and other kaiju media in light of the release of Godzilla vs. Kong. I'm Mark I prepared for kaiju attack by building my house out of straw.
1: I'm Erica Spires, safely tucked away in a major metropolitan coastal city. And I'm Brian Hurt.
2: And on today's show, I'll be insisting on the pronunciation Gojira. Consider yourself warned, Erica and Mark. And Mark, that's already uh, 50 cents in the swear jar.
0: Gojira is coming! I think you can't say just Gojira without then going into a horrible Japanese accent, which I think would offend many more people.
2: (laughs) Well, it's sure to offend, too, right now, and anyone who listens as well.
1: No, that was the first thing I kind of noticed, Brian, was Gojira. So many, through the years, right, English-speaking people, have made fun of that accent, but it's not. It's actually pronounced differently. The only reason I knew this is because I, I watch everything with subtitles. So when I was watching like the first Godzilla, the one with, is it actually just called Godzilla? The one with Elizabeth Olsen and Aaron Taylor Johnson, Brian Cranston. Uh, you're saying the first Godzilla. Well, in the new series. <laughs> the, the, in, the yeah, in the new Godzilla. Monsterverse. <laughs> right. But they, they actually spell it out G O J I R A. Gojira. Gojira.
2: Right, and it's not our R. It's sort of more of the Japanese tapping R. It's not the R of the American English R. Yeah. So, And in the subtitles of the Shin Godzilla as well, that's how they, when they would spell it out and compare how Americans insisted on pronouncing it versus, or calling it, codenaming it, versus how the Japanese did.
0: All right, we're already totally scattered. What are we doing here, Mark? I'm going to segue that because we wanted to talk about this movie franchise that is big now, and it seemed like a pale imitation, like Marvel, Star Wars, and then the Monsterverse thing, like this attempt to make something as big as that. But in seeing, I hadn't seen the uh, 2014 Godzilla, but in just seeing like King of the Monsters and kind of coming into this, just felt like there was almost nothing to it. That it's just like the seeing something really big step on buildings and that's it. There's nothing else to this concept. So how could it be a whole thing? But I kind of got sucked into the historical part of this a little bit in researching and that the original film, the Japanese 1954 film, was supposed to be and was actually scary. But there's a gravity within this genre toward serving it up to little kids that you can see how that's been reflected.
1: Well, tell us a bit about the history, Mark, since you enjoyed learning that. I would love to hear what you heard.
0: So the King Kong is 1932, I believe, famous for stop motion and was a direct influence on the Japanese creating Godzilla. And Godzilla was created to reflect fear of, of course, they'd just gone through atomic war in the target in World War II, but even more recently, there'd been American testing of the H-bomb that had affected a, a Japanese fishing vessel. So that was like the immediate thing of let's make this, Thing to be as serious and scary as possible with this first film, and the effects were revolutionary for their time. But then immediately trying to cash in on how wildly successful it was, it became comedy, it became pro wrestling, and became you know, Gamera, the Godzilla ripoff. That my main introduction to this had been through Mystery Science Theater riffing on those movies. So getting reintroduced this, and, and Japan has not continuously but recurrently put out Godzilla movie after Godzilla movie. So it's really, you know, a strange, I don't want to say cultural appropriation, because that's not the way, (laughs) it's not like, this is a native art form that America took over. But it's still a little weird, the connections between, you know, American versions and Japanese versions.
2: Did you see the original Japanese version of the 1954 movie, Mark, which is showing on HBO Max?
0: Yeah, I did watch it for this, and I was really surprised that what people were shown in America as the original Godzilla movie was not the same thing. It was like, that movie, but let's add in Raymond Burr, let's add in an American actor after the fact, let's completely change the plot around and like have Raymond Burr narrating all this stuff and interacting, I'm using air quotes, with the original cast, (laughs) but it was all just like to pander to American audiences. It was really weird.
2: I was struck by how seriously the filmmakers took the movie. Like, just in my mind, these were just schlock, corny monster movies. They were clearly aware that it wasn't high art necessarily, but they were serious in what they were doing. And it was almost sort of shocking early on. And I don't know if audiences who walked into that knew what they were getting, but some of the very first scenes in that movie are boats being attacked on the water from under the surface by Godzilla, but that's not known. And you could easily think that you were watching footage of boats being on the water while a harbor city was being attacked by an A-bomb during World War II, right? I mean, the imagery was so evocative of something that had happened less than 10 years before in that country that it must have been shocking for an audience to be watching that. And just the nearness of it all, you have to watch it with a different set of eyes. I mean, it doesn't hold up... In terms of effects, or even in terms of pacing or editing, there is some clunky qualities to it, but it's really kind of an amazing work of art, especially when it was made and in, in the context that it was
1: made in. The Monsterverse also does a pretty good job, at least in the, in the first Godzilla, of explaining the origins, the fact that this is something that we made through warfare. And I think that it's really fascinating. Through all of the big monster movies, whether it's Monsterverse or not, there is this element of the natural world and how we keep messing with it as humans, even though we're part of the natural world of trying to change things and trying to control things. And through doing that, becoming monsters ourselves and creating monsters that are bigger than we can control.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to try to figure out clearly there was a political message in the original one. You know, we should stop atomic testing. It was not an effective political message. There was more atomic testing than ever and that was immediately lost, but it's very tempting when we're dealing with something like this to treat it as a metaphor of, you know, if you want it to actually be scary at all and not just pro wrestling, I'm kind of surprised that there wasn't a Godzilla or something like that closer to 9 11. If Godzilla was like expressing their fear of what had happened only a decade before, and the atomic testing was going on at the time, like I can't watch the current Godzilla movies and him smashing buildings without thinking about an actual building that got smashed and the real human toll. I think these new movies do play on that. How can you play on that real fear and yet be an action movie for kids?
2: Well, in my mind, I feel like Cloverfield was the post nine eleven. Godzilla movie, even though it wasn't actually Godzilla, it was this intimate reaction with the found footage of people with this catastrophe going on in New York City and not knowing what was going on so between the ignorance and the fear, I think that was you know capturing that a lot, just to, to back up a second, are there mainly six movies that we've we've seen that we want to make sure that we mention in terms of the context for this, so that's the nineteen fifty four original Godzilla and then from the same studio in 2016 is a movie called Shin Godzilla which is also Japanese it's a really it's a reboot of Godzilla because the way it goes the city has no knowledge of Godzilla having attacked in 1954 but it, it's very much a spiritual successor to the original and then Legendary Pictures since 2014 has come out with four movies that are called The Monsterverse, and they actually complete a cycle. I don't know that any more are planned right now. And even the last one specifically doesn't even have a stinger at the end. And the director said, yeah, no, we're pretty much done right now until we figure out what we want to do next. So those are uh, Godzilla in 2014, Kong Skull Island in 2017. Though that was actually set back during the Vietnam era. Godzilla, King of Monsters in 2019. though King Kong might have an argument over who's the King of Monsters. And Godzilla vs. Kong in 2021, which, as we record this, is still available to watch on
0: HBO Max. It's just to the end of April, yep.
2: And some of those movies are pretty good, but they aren't all pretty good, and some are downright nonsense.
0: Can I add just a couple more here, though? I just happen to have seen the original King Kong. My son was watching it over Christmas break for a class. But even if you haven't seen that, if you've seen the Peter Jackson King Kong, it's a pretty darn faithful, like it's the same plot more or less, minus the problematic elements from the 30s.
2: I haven't seen the 1930s one. I've seen footage. You know, it's part of our cultural knowledge. Of course, I've seen the 1976 one with Jeff Bridges.
0: When I was eight, I mean. Well,
2: it was on on TV shortly thereafter, right? A movie of the week. And yeah, I've seen the Peter Jackson one a couple times as well. What about you, Erica, in terms of the Kong movies?
1: I think for me, it's mostly been just the footage, right? Of I feel like we've all seen pieces for our whole lives. And I think I saw the Peter Jackson, I at least saw part of it. I have to be honest, it's very hard for me to watch the Kong movies. To me, it's the equivalent of watching a movie about a dog who is your best friend and is constantly getting attacked by things and people killing your dog. I don't like watching them at all because I really like Kong. It makes me upset. So for a number of reasons, watching Godzilla versus Kong was was not as great of an experience as some of the earlier Godzilla's. I don't seek out the Kong movies. It, they, they really bother me and make my heart hurt. I want to go back real quick to, to Mark, what you said about 9-11. And Brian, I think you're probably right about Cloverfield. But also 9-11 is, I mean, you could say the same thing, I guess, about the atom bomb. It's a thing that humans made. I feel like 9-11 to me is more, has a human, has humans behind it. Like literally we think of the humans that did that rather than a bomb. They were using something to the effect of a bomb. But that's my best guess as to why it doesn't directly translate. I think that the monster is more of this is this thing that we cannot quite put our finger on, but we've created something, but we don't really know how. It's bigger than we are. It's gotten out of control. So I think that maybe just that humanistic quality behind terrorist attacks makes them not quite the same thing as... A giant monster attack,
2: and there's an intentionality to it, the way you're describing it, where yeah with the original Godzilla and with the rampaging dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, they were created, whether inadvertently like Godzilla and became a monster, or with the intention of being benign or controllable, like
0: a sideshow like King Kong. yeah,
2: but you know, King Kong, at least is is a natural creature. And the Godzilla in the new MonsterVerse is also just a, you know, he's a titan that predates humanity. That's an interesting and I think a meaningful distinction to draw, Erica. And also allegory counts for a lot, right? I mean, we don't necessarily want a movie that touches us so closely as something that was, you know, part of a great national suffering. We still do go to the movies, especially when it's about giant animals rampaging, to be somewhat entertained, though, to your point, Mark, I'm not sure we go to be scared. Velociraptors, not being particularly large, were the only really the scariest thing about Jurassic Park. I I know you had even mentioned in our notes page whether dinosaurs counted. And I countered that I'm not sure that the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are actually even dinosaurs. And that's part of the problem is that there are this these chimera that were created that are just goofball monsters. But I'd like to get to your point, Mark. Are, Are they supposed to be scary in any way? Because they're not. And I don't think that's what anyone's trying for.
0: Certainly, if you're having your characters like dodging out of the way of giant feet, if there's, if so much of it is from the point of view of the people who are in mortal danger and, you know, fleeing for their lives, it has to be at least kind of like Twister, like exciting. I mean, Twister was pretty scary in terms of like a literal force of nature. So Godzilla is only like one step removed from that to the point of some of these monsters can summon up hurricanes. So another touchstone, I guess, with Shin Godzilla was the tsunamis and things that had happened, I guess. You know, a more recent thing that had just wreaked havoc in parts of Asia. I can't remember which movie about the tsunamis I saw, but, like, was one of the most terrifying things that I've seen of, like, you know, from the ground level. So you definitely get some of that in the Godzilla movies or Pacific Rim or these other kaiju things.
2: I was thinking of the earthquake and then the uh, nuclear catastrophe in Japan is definitely informing Shin Godzilla as well. So, you know, they're... Dealing with a lot in Japan and reality that I think is playing into these movies. I do see your point about having these monsters overhead. I guess I don't think of it as, as horror movie scary so much as just the like Luke's perspective when the ad at foot is coming towards him. Or Tom Cruise in The War of the Worlds or Cloverfield. Being low with something towering above you. Really, there is something very primal in terms of dread of, of being... So little compared to something so big and so destructive above you. We don't see that perspective very much in either Japanese Godzilla movie that we watched. So much of it's coming from people meeting around tables and, you know, troops who are behind lines who are firing from tanks. I don't feel like I'm feeling that personal danger in quite the same way.
1: I would actually posit that I find these movies to be less scary and more especially this last one, almost science fiction. I was not expecting to enjoy myself as much as I did. But I have to say, watching the 2014 Godzilla, I had such a low bar for it. And I thought it was really good. It was really enjoyable. And that's why I immediately was like, okay, let's watch the others. And I had forgotten that I had seen Kong Skull Island. I actually had seen that when it uh, when it was released a few years back, but once again, I guess, like I said, it's not an awesome experience for me to watch Kong movies, so I probably erased it out of my memory. The Godzilla thing was really fun, and I think part of why I really like it too is that he's a bit of an anti-hero, right? And he kind of is a savior of the world in a way, and at the same time, destroying it, but always seems to be kind of in control of things. I think we see Kong as a bit more humanistic. And maybe because Godzilla just has like lizard skin, we don't see it in that way, but definitely seems to kind of just be almost this indestructible force. And I guess suppose that's what a Titan would be. But yeah, it almost feels like sci-fi. It's something we created out of a lab that we didn't quite mean to. And in fact, I was watching the host last night, Bong Joon-ho. And one of the things he said about it in an interview was that it he was reminded, because the host in particular, let me just go back for a second. The host is a, a film that Bang Joon-ho did, I believe in 2003 or 2006. I think it was 2003. I think
2: 2006.
1: Yes, you're right. So Bang Joon-ho did this film and a lot of people are saying like, oh, this is a commentary on U.S. occupation in South Korea. And when he answered the question about this in an interview, he didn't directly say that was why. He was basically saying like, this is kind of like we grew up in this sort of occupation of the U.S. military, but also he just thought of like these types of movies as something goes wrong in a science experiment. And before you know it, like somebody makes a grave mistake and all of a sudden before you know it, you have this giant monster. So I think like definitely for him, there is a sci-fi element to this. I don't know if that was the intention in the original, but I think it definitely has a lot of ties with sci-fi.
2: It really stumbles into science fantasy in the third movie, right? That's where we have, really, we get into the whole, and that was Godzilla, King of Monsters. When we get into the hollow earth and these ancient titans this was insane, right? It was, it, it's, it's the sort of thing where you make it so bonkers that you accept it. Yeah. There was an article in Variety Magazine called Godzilla vs. Kong Raises the Question, Is Nonsense the New Normal? by Owen Gleiberman. And there was a line about halfway through that comments that regarding the old Godzilla films is even when they were exuberantly bad, they felt more like handmade schlock than incoherent corporate product. And that really resonated with me because I thought that I really think Godzilla King of Monsters was the worst of the movies in part because it was so many monsters and I didn't care about any of them and I didn't care about any of the people. And at least in the final one, Godzilla versus Kong, there were three Monsters I I did care about, at least two I was rooting for in some way, and then it's been called the worst kept secret in Hollywood, right? So we're allowed to mention Mechagodzilla as the third monster. Sure, Yeah, of course you're rooting against against that one. And there were, of all the irritating people, there were at least a few that we cared about. Mm -hmm. I don't remember any of the characters' names.
0: Don't worry about it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Who's the actress? Rebecca Hall and her adoptive daughter, little
1: friend. She was a delight.
2: Those two, I mean, that was the storyline I cared about and their ability to, and they had a connection with Kong. But all the other humans, I was just praying for their death. I could not have the other characters off the screen soon enough. And Millie Bobby Brown was just insufferable. (laughs) Insufferable.
0: It would have helped if I hadn't seen her uh, New Zealand friend as the bad guy in The Christmas Chronicles 2 so recently.
1: I love him I so much. Oh, he! What an adorable child! And he's growing <laughs> up, and still is an adorable teen. I don't get it.
2: <laughs> yeah, the science fiction in that movie was just bonkers, and even the little things were bonkers. They're they're in the hollow Earth, and for some reason, gravity like switches immediately, and they time warp down there. But someone has carved a palace with doors and a throne and an axe made out of a Godzilla. Finn as the blade and Godzilla can somehow shoot his fire all the way down there. I mean, we've come a long way from (laughs) (laughs) the first Godzilla movie in 2014 was partly what was so great about it was, was its restraint. And that's funny to say in a Godzilla movie, but I did see that in the theater. It was on a, like a $5 Tuesday and the theater was packed and a lot of people were high and they were just loving this movie. And I really was too. And Godzilla doesn't fire his breath very often. In fact, the first time he does is pretty late in the movie. And you see him firing up his charge as, <laughs> as, as, as like a, yeah, <laughs> with the sound and your teeth are rattling and you have like you feel this nerdgasm building up inside you. And oh, my then God. He just, Nerd lo- and he just lets it rip. And we all just lost it. And it was great in part because. We didn't get too much of that in the movie. And I think a little of a good thing really proves sometimes that too much of a good thing doesn't really work. So as much as I enjoyed that first Godzilla movie in 2014, I think it was probably the best of all of the four films in the cycle.
0: And it didn't make the mistake of saying it's not enough to have big kaiju looming over you we need to introduce small creatures as well so the 1996 godzilla film i just only remembered this seeing a clip just in prepping for this of basically introducing velociraptors (laughs) as a thing that can chase you or i remember in cloverfield like even if you go in the subway what was the thing that some little critters are gonna jump on you and poison you and kill you that's not necessary (laughs) if you want to add radioactive gas or something from godzilla as another thing that can kill you besides just stepping on you. That's great, but no auxiliary threats. I don't get that.
2: So that's the, well, there was a 1998 Godzilla that we are talking I mean. about yeah, with yeah. Matthew Broderick. That was, they didn't quite have the budget for making Godzilla look as good as it needed to. So there was a lot of rain and a lot of darkness and his size changed constantly based on what the plot required. So if it needed to fit through a tunnel, it did. And if it needed to reach to the top of a building, it did. And there was just no consistency. I remember seeing it, but not thinking much of it and forgetting it pretty quickly. Mark uttered the K word for Kaiju. And I think while anyone is firing off an angry email to us for not mentioning Pacific Rim, it's probably we should acknowledge that as a what I think is a pretty darn good entry in the Kaiju films. Mark, did you have a chance to see it or do we have to kick you off the show?
0: I just watched it last night. I did not see the sequel. I don't know that it is worth it. There was talk when I was reading about a potential crossover. The Pacific Rim people were interested if there was some way to to hook that up with the MonsterVerse.
2: What did you think of Pacific Rim?
0: As a kaiju film, I guess this is kind of getting into, like, once kaiju is established as a thing, and the reason that the subsequent Godzilla films don't really continue in the isn't something big, so awe-inspiring is because that's kind of a one-trick pony. Like, and now we only really needed it with the first Godzilla film. So, adding more monsters. I actually liked the monsters in you know Rodan and the the other characters. I wanted to see more Mothra. I wanted to see all the ones that they only showed for a second. There's still something that sours pretty quickly about that concept. So, Pacific Rim was rightly focusing on not the giant monsters, but the human dynamics and the idea of people in suits whacking these things, that adds like an extra, it's like an element of power. Like if Godzilla by himself is this overwhelming typhoon-like force, then well, can't we then as superhero films, let's get in big suits and fight them hand to hand. So I think it it really worked. As a superhero kind of film, it didn't add that much to my experience of kaiju.
2: This didn't jump out at me when I watched it, but when it was pointed out, I thought it was a charming detail of Pacific Rim that all of the monsters even though they were cg were designed so that they could have been suits so none of them are in a shape that a human body wouldn't fit into so that was sort of an homage to the old japanese kaiju movies they do a, re- a kind of a very good job of doing that and evoking that that old feel to it It's not a brilliant movie, but it's very enjoyable. I I rewatched it and didn't enjoy it as much the second time. It didn't hold up quite as well. And maybe the problem was I, I wasn't watching it in the theater as I did the first time. Okay, I'd like to talk to you about Upstart, a lending platform that can help you take control of your debt. Now, I've made my share of decisions related to my personal finances, and I've seen firsthand that sometimes with even the most careful planning, debt can sneak up on you, and it's easy to be overwhelmed. The PowerBook 180 I bought in 1994 didn't make it to the new millennium, but I'm pretty sure I was still paying for it in Y2K. I could have used Upstart then. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, and it's all done online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. Now, unlike other lenders, Upstart looks at more than just your credit score like your income and employment history. This means they can offer smarter rates with trusted partners. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 and $50,000. You can receive your funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. So don't wait to take control of your credit and to claim your freedom. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com pretty. That's upstart.com pretty. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. Okay, back to the discussion.
1: I wrote something. I'm trying to look up my Twitter real quick because I actually tweeted about.
0: You tweeted about this? Live tweeted while you were watching?
1: No, it was just one specific kind of thought. So this was my Godzilla versus Kong quick take. More goofy scars Guard. Loved it, right? Okay, that's the first part. What kind of satellites is Apex using? Skyscrapers seem to be way easier to topple than they were in San Francisco. <laughs> Assuming I can think at shimmy blue jeans for the genuine laughs. I will say that it was very funny in parts. Like I laugh out loud during Godzilla versus Kong several times. And I looked it up to see who the writers were. And one of the writers is eric pearson p-e-a-r-s-o-n eric pearson is also the writer for thor ragnarok the upcoming black widow agent carter and he has been a script doctor on several of the marvel things that we like like avengers which one was this the regular in game infinity war script doctor in pacific rim and ant-man
2: you're becoming a fangirl of a screenplay writer.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, like, once you realize that, you know, because I looked all of them up just very quickly to see what their previous work was. And this one, I was like, holy shit, you did Thor Ragnarok. And for some reason, I always just think of that as with Taika Waititi, right? We forget oftentimes, the writers, or we forget the composers. We remember the singer, but not the songwriter. So it seems to me like I really like Eric Pearson's work. So I just want to shout out to him because there were some genuinely funny moments in this movie. And one of the things I really think was successful about it was that it actually wasn't scary. It was more just kind of a ridiculous fun experience. If you look at it from that perspective, as opposed to the 2014 Godzilla are some of the more serious, a little more serious Godzillas. This one definitely went off the rails, but at least it was actually very fun. It wasn't great.
2: And you have to give him a pass on the bonkers science fiction, in part because he inherited that from the previous movie. I mean, it is just Terrible, but you know, (laughs) you're a corporate stool at a certain point and you've said you were gonna make a sequel to this nonsense with more nonsense. So yeah, I guess you
0: might as well lean into it, right? Yeah. It doesn't excuse the just weird plotting.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree.
0: The let's jump into the cage that's about to be fast tracked to Manila or like just very reckless behavior (laughs) that I didn't quite buy. While you're trying to attract with your mecha godzilla you're trying to attract godzilla to a major city to fight him as opposed to like taking it out in the ocean or I don't I just didn't understand fundamental things that were going on when
1: I am with you on that but here's what I think happened this has five people credited as writers but if you look at it three of them are story by and two of them are screenplay by so the screenplay was by Eric Pearson and Max Borenstein Then three of them were story by. So that makes me wonder, because I haven't researched this enough, if all of these folks, and I wouldn't be surprised. So one of them, the story by, he was actually the screenplay writer for Godzilla, King of the Monsters. It was a lot of cooks. And so you wonder who came up with the original idea. And did Legendary Pictures come up with the entire arc? And then they handed it off to the screenplay writers and gave them certain parameters. of Like, this has to happen in this one. Make it work.
2: So an ampersand means it's a writing team. So an and mean that they were working at different times or in different capacities. So we actually have four writing teams, which is just crazy.
1: Wait, what? How do I I look that up?
2: So Terry Rossio, A-N-D, Michael Doherty, ampersand, Zach Shields. So Doherty and Shields were a team because they're ampersanded. And it's just one of those things. I know, this is... (laughs) Interesting, though. When you see two names, did they write it together or did one start it and get fired? And, or was someone brought in after the fact because some exec saw it and said, yeah, no, we need something different. So I always, I like to know what it means when there are two names.
1: So the second one who was brought in, if not an and, might be somebody who had a completely different vision and wanted to tell a very different story, but was handed this previous version and said, keep these elements which is a very difficult job, I would assume.
2: (laughs) Or sometimes you just write a first draft and are fired. But you then go to arbitration and point out that enough of it was yours and they have to put your name back on the movie. I mean, I don't need to tell you, Erica.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've never been a part of that except as an actor. And yes, it can be a total mess and a fight between what stays and what goes and who gets credited.
2: Well, I apologize for this uh, tangent when we really should be spending our time talking about really the most important movie that we haven't yet, which is uh, Rampage starring The Rock <laughs> based on the video game. I know Mark and I played at some length in our Ill,
1: oh, uh, yeah. ill-spent
2: early teens with a giant lizard, which was a, clearly a, well, it was a, a Godzilla knockoff, a King Kong knockoff, and for some reason a gigantic... Wolf. Mark, do you remember playing this? And did they have actually have unique powers that were balanced or were they all just three differently skinned versions of the same exact monster?
0: I think they were the same in the original video game, which I have played more recently than that. And at some point got a hold of a PS like Rampage World Tour or something like that, that had more monsters. And maybe they did. I don't know. I didn't play enough of it to, to see whether maximum use was made of it. But I was interested, got into these just looking at YouTube of synopses and reviews of these old Godzilla things. And there's a fan made, apparently like uh, somebody that worked on the Godzilla movies in Japan that then went made it in his own The Wolfman versus Godzilla. So there's footage of that. It looks just as good as a regular, you know, terrible early 70s, late 60s Godzilla movie. I did want to kind of touch base with you folks about what the variety of stuff you'd like to see big <laughs> or that you think, are they really, as in Pacific Rim, all the same to you? Yes, it's even less in accordance with the laws of physics and biology to have a giant wolf, but it would still be kind of like, I'm surprised there hasn't been a giant cat one that I know about. There's versions of all these in the old Godzilla movies, but like recently filming your dogs and cats walking over city seems an obvious thing. So. But there's something about a giant dog that is just not as scary or something as as the iconic Godzilla or even King Kong.
1: I agree. I'm not even really a big fan of the mechanical ones. Are we
0: allowed to spoil the movie Colossal? Because it
2: speaks to your question mark.
0: Sure. We wanted to get into a little other movies where kaiju is a feature, even though it's not the same kind of movie. So this is, yeah, go ahead, Brian. Maybe
2: that's a good transition. And this is a fairly recent movie, I want to say around 2016, starring Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis. And it's set somewhere on the East Coast, upstate New York, something like that. And it's just about a, an alcoholic woman who's going through a crisis. And contemporaneously, there is a kaiju attacking uh, Seoul, Korea. And a connection between these is revealed. And it turns out every time she goes through a certain playground at a specific time of day in her hometown, this monster kaiju is attacking Seoul at the same time. And literally her actions in the playground at 8.15 in the morning or 8.05 in the morning are making that happen. And it turns out her acquaintance from grade school, when he is in the park at the same time does the same thing and she is a ogreish type creature uh, i don't know if she's a, made out of leathery skin or wood i was thinking i am groot it, it kind of reminded me of groot yeah I'm a bit of a groot like but you know towering as tall as godzilla and he is a robot when he is over korea but it's all just body dressing because they're just people and when they interact they're fighting with each other in a playground in upstate New York. And they could easily be opposite. And it wouldn't even make any difference from the perspective of what it means to the people of Seoul who are having their city stepped on. So I, I think, truly, Mark, other than maybe whether you can fire a ray or whether you can fly, which give you some sort of tactical advantage or disadvantage, or breathe underwater, they're all the same damn thing. I think it would be interesting to go into these other types of movies, including this one, Colossal, which I just enjoyed tremendously. And thank you for, for the recommendation on that. That's the premise. But I don't want to maybe even spoil the ending because I think it's totally worth a watch. And as I think it's quite obvious that the real monsters are the people and not the monsters over over Seoul or maybe the monsters in all of us. But what did you two think of that? And also just in general of kaiju as a, a way of telling other types of stories beyond traditional monster-smashing city stories.
0: There's always room for this to symbolize something else. So whether it's the fear of atomic radiation or the fear of what happened on 9-11 or later Godzilla films, one of them was specifically about pollution. So he's sort of the radiation monster is fighting the pollution monster. And this one was about just the self-destructiveness of people. And at one point, the Jason Sudeikis character is about to drive drunk. And it's like, this is the same thing. Introducing a kaiju element is just a way of amplifying the damage that people who are out of control on alcohol or other other things can wreak on the people in their lives. So I thought that was a great use of that trope. You had recommended when a monster calls. I didn't actually get around to seeing that. But was that another variation of like to use the giant monster thing to tell a different kind of story?
2: It was. That was a story about a a child who's, and it's been a little while since I've seen it. I believe maybe his mother is dying of cancer and he is visited by a a kaiju voiced by Liam Neeson. And clearly there is a a monster in in the boy's life. I mean, he's young and and going through the fear of, of loss and abandonment. And it's all of his fears sort of made tangible and physically real in a way that I wish I could actually remember the story better. I remember it having a lot of emotional resonance with me when I watched it. And I think because it did have something of a fairy tale quality, I'm having a little trouble having more of an intellectual memory than an emotional memory of it. But I think I remember it well enough to recommend it. But if nothing else, it was very clear that it was not about city smashing so much as a kind of an intense personal relationship with these micro destructions. I mean, micro in the sense of, you know, all of our lives individually are not that much compared to the world as a whole, but to see it painted so large like that was really something to see.
1: I finally have an answer for Mark about other giant monsters that roam the earth. And we have to remember probably the one we grew up with, where i grew up with the most prominent in my head is clifford the big red dog who was born a normal size but grew large because emily elizabeth loved him so much kind of an interesting spin though actually if you think about it like something growing huge because of the you know the opposite of destruction it's the you know obviously like in your head you can think of it like looking back as a child, Clifford probably just symbolized that kind of love. He wasn't actually probably that big, but whatever, it's a children's story. I didn't expect to get so much out of this subject. And after watching the Godzilla movies and then watching the host last night, it's just got me thinking more about, well, in the host This thing, this other, and this this happens in lots of the movies, right? It's we keep talking about this this thing that we don't have control over. And in the host, every time they try to, you know, even when you're trying to destroy something, it's something you you created, but you don't know how you created, but it got out of hand. But when you destroy it, you're also destroying something that's good as well as something that's bad. So it's just this total lack of control in all of these. And trying to regain control and just not having any clue of what your actions do any longer. And I'm reminded of the conversation we had during Christmas time about how we're all actually Ebenezer Scrooge. We read the book thinking that we're not Scrooge, but that's the reason we keep having to tell this story. And I think these kaiju movies are the same. We like to think that the man is creating the destruction and creating the war and creating. The nuclear energy or whatever, radiation. But we're all creating it, right? Like we're all a part of the problem, and we have to keep retelling this story because we don't learn from it. Coming at it with the mind of a child, watching these kinds of stories as children. Yes, we are. We are born into all of this, and we can look at all of that and say, "Oh my God!" Like I would never be a part of that. Why is the world so awful? And then you get older, and you still think, "Why is the world so awful? Everybody else is so awful." But whatever it is that's within inside us that makes us scared and makes us want to hold on to certain points of power and the structure that's already there because we're used to it is still contributing to this whatever we want to you know say that thing is whether it's our own addiction or it's the destructiveness that we just naturally have on the world is pollution whatever so I don't think we get that and. These movies are trying to remind us of that, I think, at maybe their most, maybe at their core and not always out there um, on the surface level. But deep below, maybe in the hollow earth, that's what they're reminding us of.
2: You know, that is really well said. That aligns with my attempt to analyze the appeal of these as well. There is this thing in storytelling or the craft of writing that tries to boil stories down to being a a certain number of types. And some say that there's seven types of stories and you can look that up if you want. And some say there's only three types of stories and there's a happy ending, unhappy ending and tragedy. And then there's always some wit who says, well, there's only one story when you get down to it and that's Beowulf and that every story is just Beowulf all over again. And I don't think that's true, but there is something that really stands out about how these stories are not only metaphorically Beowulf, but they really are Beowulf written out somewhat literally as this unknown thing, the monster at the fringe of your understanding of the world that you don't understand, that you try to conquer, and the act of conquering it typically only leads to knowledge that there's often something worse out there than even what you started with. And it just, I think, appeals to us at some deep level in the hollow earth of our souls.
0: And some of these might be a little dependent on the culture, and I kind of just want to bring back the Japan versus America thing with, I had not heard of Shin Godzilla before looking into this. It was only just, oh, we should actually see, since we're considering these American versions, what the Japanese version is doing with it. And when I watched it, It seemed better. It seemed less like a a piece of corporate trash than the ones that we're celebrating centrally today. But I didn't realize, you know, it won major awards and things over there because it's a very Japanese kind of story. I think in that it's just, as you were saying, Brian, it's a lot of people around tables, (laughs) just like the original Godzilla, but it's a really a piece of civic engagement. It's just, we will work hard. And then when the people who are doing the planning against Godzilla, even their headquarters gets trampled on. And so only some of them are left. Well, we'll, again, work hard together and tirelessly and we'll work through all the red tape. And, you know, it sounds way more boring than, <laughs> than it actually was. But there's something that was gripping, you know, or was presented as that it's it's like, I was thinking if Aaron Sorkin wrote Godzilla film. Like, yeah, I'm hearing Japanese, but it's just a constant barrage, barrage, and like very efficient, like, let's sum up this meeting By hearing four lines of dialogue that are delivered, like, punch, 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 punch. It's just kind of how things get done. It just was a bizarre, I don't know if it was just idiosyncratic to that film, or whether it's something someone living in Japan would find a more understandable way of approaching the the whole issue.
2: Yeah, it was almost Michael Crichton-like in its procedural nature. And boy, America does not come off well in that one. (laughs) The Friendly Germans and the friendly French, but man, which is fine. (laughs) I have no concerns about that. I appreciated that they, for as much time and effort that went into it, they did not try to make Godzilla look too different from what it looked like in the 50s by the end. I mean, it was, they could have modernized the monster in a way that would have been fine, but I liked that they didn't yeah, I quite enjoyed that movie, I must say.
1: We definitely have more of a throwaway culture than a lot of Asian countries, particularly Japan, right? There's um, the art of taking pieces of pottery, right? And putting some gold inside to like put it back together again and make it even more beautiful than it was the first time. You know, the fact that that is a thing, you can buy these kits on Etsy to fix your own pottery here in the fucking US because we will just throw away a cup which this just happened to me recently. And it sat there for a long time. I was like, I should get one of those kits. And then I didn't, I just threw away the cup. There was a short film a few years ago, it was an Academy Award nominated short film about things that were getting thrown away and how you can reuse them. It's just part of that culture more than, far more than the United States has. So I, uh, yeah, I agree. I have no problem with them being like, the US is part of the problem coming here, trying to fix things and we don't need it to be fixed. And of course, that's not what all of them are probably about, I don't think. But like, I, th- I think that's a pretty good allegory for, for what we do. Bull in a china shop.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> like a Godzilla in a china shop.
0: <laughs> I just ran across so many weird things in researching this, including apparently a movie, a lost movie from the, the 30s that then was remade, The Great Buddha Arrival. So it's a giant statue of the Buddha. <laughs> That is rampaging through wherever it is, it's in Japan, presumably, to punish us for our sins. Like, there's just something we could do. A different episode on sort of religious terror and and where that, you know, whether it's the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the thing coming up and melting the faces off the men. You know that that is more akin to that sort of thing. But certainly, you can just anytime you're talking about the overwhelming. There, there was also a proposed movie that didn't quite get made called Godzilla versus the Devil.
2: <laughs> wow. <laughs> the people you'll meet in Hollow <laughs> Earth. I want to mention a couple movies from my youth. One, something I had seen on TV a million times on Family Classics, and that's Jason and the Argonauts. And there's oh a scene God, where yes. a giant statue, that's from 1963, where this giant statue of Talos comes to life. And they, the Argonauts fight him, and eventually they release, which was just what you want, right? As a little, on your heel, you... Release the valve and all the life steam comes out of you and he falls over. But one of the first I remember seeing in the theater was in 1981. And I remember I went to the movies the same weekend as my sister and she came back saying, I just seen the best movie ever. It's called Indiana. It's called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I said, no, I've just seen the best movie ever. It's called Clash of the Titans. So of course, one of us had to come at the age better than the other, (laughs) but the scene where the Kraken I guess he appears in two scenes, one in the beginning and one at the end. I remember really having vivid memories of that and thinking about this this gigantic sea creature. And, I, you know, I, I lived by a lake like <laughs> Lake Michigan. I don't think I had any real fears of this, but it definitely was something that made an impression on me for a long time. So the Kraken, not quite a kaiju, but definitely something cut from the same cloth from my youth.
0: A common theme here on your most intense experiences, Brian, seems to be the theater. I really wish... Didn't even occur to me. Of course, it's not really an option yet. My vaccine is not quite kicked in to go see Godzilla versus Kong in the theater. But really, what are we doing seeing these giant monster movies on our home screens? It seems to defeat the purpose.
2: If you can stand it and the theater doesn't have too curved a screen and you're in the theater, go sit in the front and have this tower over you. It really, that's how I saw Pacific Rim. And it was just amazing to be down at the bottom with the everything above your head. That was awesome. Any last words, Erica?
1: I I don't have any more because I didn't grow up really watching these types of movies. I I just, I'm, I'm the newbie and I really, yeah, yeah. I really freaking enjoyed it a lot. I was watching Drew play God of War recently. He was going back and he's trying to platinum, going back to the earlier ones. And it was really cool. And it is thematically aligned with what we're talking about because, you know, you've like released the Titans and the Titans are helping you. Defeat the gods, helping Kratos defeat the gods, and so it just—I thought I really enjoyed the Titan element that they brought into this monster verse because you know that was that was the thing. The Titans were put inside of the—they were—they were were, what Zeus put them in there, right? Like into the middle of the earth, and and so they could no longer vie for power. So, I just thought that was a really great way to bring out these monsters and be like, yeah, there are more of them. And we're the ones bringing them up. Like, we are conjuring them up from the depths.
2: I don't know if he has played Shadow of the Colossus. It was a PS2 game that they remastered for PS4, but you pretty much, it's just 16 different Colossuses that you ride around and you climb on it and take (laughs) it down. And then you're back in the beginning and you ride your horse somewhere else and you take the next one down. And interacting with them, that is, I mean, that's definitely a a sweaty palms game for me, as well as a rage quit game for me. But if you enjoy big monsters, there's definitely a a visceral thrill in in Shadow of the Colossus.
1: Right. And this God of War is like, it's an older game, but it looks so cool because of the just scale and I think that's also another appeal of, of these films in general right is just it looks really cool the art direction is seeing models of cities or <laughs> CGI cities just destroyed and knowing that you're safe at home watching it
0: well we clearly have a little more enthusiasm for this and can talk more about video games in its regard in the after show you can get at patreon.com/ pretty much pop Thanks for joining us listeners thanks Brian Thanks Erica. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everybody.
1: Thank you, listeners.
0: Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.